between the streets before the night. I found you all alone, shaking, tired, looking lost. Welcome to GradCast, everyone, the official radio show of Western University Society of Graduate Students. My name is Tanya, and I'm joined here with Susan today. Hello. And we have a very exciting show planned for you. Our guest today is actually a GradCast member, uh, so you've definitely heard her before, um, but she's also a recent graduate from the Master of Science program here at Western. So we have Emma Bridgewater joining us. Hello, everybody. Welcome, Emma. Um, so we get to hear about your exciting research that is now available on Western's, uh, Western's thesis repository as well. Uh, I'll correct you there. It isn't technically available until today, two years from now. Uh, today, so two in years 2019, from now. Uh, just due to privacy reasons for the research. So look for it in two years. Can't wait. <laughs> so we get a sneak peek today. Yeah, we get to hear about it's it. It's going to be the world's worst cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Everyone thinks about that, about their own research. <laughs> so Emma's joining us from the speech-language ethology department here at Western, but the research side of things, correct? Yes. So my official program is health and rehabilitation sciences, mm -hmm. uh, but we do share the building. Awesome. And so today we're going to dive into our hearing system. Yes. It's a little bit uh, meta, given that everyone is listening to us speak right now. We're Whoa. using it now. Oh my gosh. I'm self-aware now. <laughs> yes, you're now actively listening, I hope. <laughs> so why don't we just start off by, tell us what is our hearing system? So we know we have our ears. What happens from there after the sound gets to our ears? So a lot of people don't really think about what sound actually is in your day-to-day -day life. So in reality, sound is when it's produced, like if I'm talking to my interviewers here, it's actually a mechanical force passing through the air. And these waves that I'm producing, you can think of it as kind of a sound wave, mm -hmm. uh, actually push molecules back and forth in a physical vibration of the air around us. And the purpose of your hearing system is basically to turn that physical sound source into something that your brain can understand. So the brain operates using electricity, and so it only really understands electricity. So how do we go from a physical force to little tiny electrical signals they, so that you can hear? And that's basically what your ear is for. So the outer side of your ear captures all of this incoming sound and focuses it down your ear canal, uh, that little thing you're not supposed to be sticking Q-tips into, everyone <laughs> out there. Uh, <laughs> yes, I but can hear you all called, guiltily giggling. They're called cure in uh, French, which is, you know something about ears. Yes. <laughs> Aren't they made for the ears? You're not supposed to put them in your actual ear oh. canal. PSA okay. for everyone listening. <laughs> Got it. Uh, but essentially, and at the end of your ear canal, what you have is something called the tympanic membrane or your eardrum. So this mm. is a very thin membrane that will vibrate back and forth in response to the sound that you're listening to in response to that mechanical vibration. And if we hop past this physical barrier in your ear canal, this membrane, we find ourselves in the middle ear, which contains three tiny little bones, which vibrate back and forth, transmitting that sound. And the third bone in that chain pounds on another membrane, and that membrane is connected to a fluid-filled channel way inside your ear. This is the cochlea, or that snail-shaped uh, part of your inner ear that you sometimes see in the media. Uh, and essentially from here, the fluid in 
the fluid vibrates in response to the sound wave as well. And all of this is happening very, very quickly, just to make sure everyone's aware of that. Um, and the fluid vibration in turn vibrates something called your basilar membrane. Uh, and this is where your hair cells are, those little tiny cells that we hear about uh, when we talk about hearing damage. And these hair cells also move back and forth in a mechanical way. Uh, but they're connected to, and this is where we finally see the transduction, they are connected to neurons, which are specialized little cells in all throughout your body that basically communicate information. And so through a relatively complicated process, these hair cells turn this physical movement into an electrical signal that can then travel up into your brain, and your brain then processes it into the sound and resolves it into what you hear me saying right now. Mm -hmm. And of course this is happening at lightning speed because you obviously don't notice any delay between my talking and your hearing, mm -hmm. uh, so it's actually a very, very cool system. That's amazing, and it's happening in real time all the time. Yes. <laughs> it's kind of like... I was thinking it's like a like a dam system. I have the mechanical energy of a river turned into electrical energy to power your house, but it with uh, the processing piece added into yeah, it. Yeah, it's very cool, and it's happening within you right now. Yeah, <laughs> as you listen. <laughs> <laughs> so as the sounds or the frequencies, I guess, travel through all of these um, levels that you just described, what happens at the brain level? How does the brain then? I guess, put it together and give us, let us know what we're hearing. So that's a much more complex concept than I think we're really capable of explaining. So we, we know where sound is processed in the brain. So as these electrical signals travel from your auditory neurons, they end up going up into the brainstem, which is kind of like the early lizard-like portion of your brain that basically just transmits everything to the big controller, which is your cortex, which is that big squishy thing that everyone always imagines is just the brain. <laughs> uh, and one particular part of this brain, uh, and we have you have a copy of it basically on both sides of your brain, both sides of your hemispheres, is responsible solely for processing sound. Um, it's a bit of a black box with respect to how exactly it resolves all of that, but this auditory center, which is called your auditory cortex actually, is basically the big comp controller at the end of all of this that is putting all these things together. Interesting. So what does it mean that it goes into the reptile part of your brain? So before... Uh, everything in your body that needs to be communicated to your brain actually goes through this part. And you can kind of feel it where it might be if you put your fingers onto the very back of your neck. You can sort of feel... Everyone in the room here is doing that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can sort of feel a gap, kind of ah. a little bit of an indent. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so that's where your spinal cord is joining with your skull. And that's in that area, roughly, is where your brainstem would be. And every single neuron in your body gets transmitted through this first, so it can communicate everything about what's going on to your brain. Hmm. So the, the, the brainstem basically acts as a relay system, and it kind of makes sure everything's going where it's supposed to be. There's specialized structures that basically say, okay, so these are neurons coming from the auditory system. You're going to go up to this area of the brain and other neurons get routed through other areas. Oh, cool. So it's like, a, like basically like traffic. <laughs> yes. And yes. Yeah. Going in different directions, depending on where the information is coming from. Yes. It is much more efficient than the 400 series, though, <laughs> I must say. That would have to be. <laughs> <laughs> so then... 
would you would you say then we depending on what sound we're hearing we process it differently even though it's coming from the same system yes so there's humans can hear at a limited frequency often you'll hear things people talk about things like dog whistles which mm -hmm. operate at a frequency far beyond what our ears are actually capable of processing but within that band of frequencies that humans are actually able to hear uh, some frequencies are special and this is the range of speech so while you can process a lot of sounds the range of the range of frequency covered by regular human speech is actually given an advantage your brain wants to hear that and so it gets uh, all of these structures these external structures that funnel this mechanical signal into your ear are actually specialized in very particular ways to amplify those particular frequencies so you can actually hear them better which is kind of cool that's very cool, not kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. <laughs> so then, is it possible some people can hear certain frequencies that others can't, or is it just, in general, humans hear about the same? If you took the average healthy listener, so, you know, the average 20-year-old, most of them are going to be able to hear approximately the same. And, I mean, it's, it might have some individual variation, but it's not anything major. Uh, of course, when you take into account hearing loss, we have natural hearing loss as we age, so an older individual is not going to be able to hear uh, frequencies as well as younger individuals. Typically, they kind of start losing the higher frequency sounds uh, as the older you get. Mm -hmm. uh, but generally, yes, humans hear in a very similar fashion to one another. So what is the frequency band? Like, how, how big is it for humans versus maybe other animals? Uh, so humans is between 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz, I believe. Don't quote me on that. That so might be or like not just like between 10 and 20. It's like it, it is quite a large range of oh, frequencies. Wow. But in terms of what other animals can hear, we are actually pretty deaf. Uh, <laughs> we we have a very limited range of hearing, whereas dogs can hear. Their lower frequency limit is a bit higher than ours, but their higher frequency limit is much, much higher. Mm -hmm. So if your dog starts barking at something that perhaps, you know, you're not seeing, it could be the case that they're hearing something that you are just aren't able to anymore or I never were. Sure I mentioned that to my family instead of telling our dog buddy to quiet down. He's actually hearing something. <laughs> I mean, he may just be crazy, but yeah. <laughs> that is quite possible, actually. <laughs> so even um, I guess when people say that they're training their pitch or they're training their listening like singers for example can they actually train to hear a different frequency or is that something completely different so with respect to i'm not an expert on this so take this with a grain of salt um with respect to things like training pitch and being able to discriminate um musical sounds that's really just practice because you're not listening to anything that's outside of the normal range of he human hearing uh you're right. just focusing your energy on getting better at discriminating those sounds and theoretically any human could do that it's just it seems to be the the realm of singers and musicians that mm -hmm. tend to focus on it and so that kind of brings us to kind of what you're doing is where you're able to now sort of evaluate um the processing of sound to some degree so maybe we can talk a little bit about how or what that means to measure the ability to hear frequencies uh so yeah so 
If anyone out there has ever gone in for a hearing test, um, essentially what you do is you're put into a soundproof room to reduce as much background noise as possible so we can maximize how, you know, our measurement of your hearing. And using a variety of instruments, uh, including really wacky looking headphones and little tiny insert microphones that we stick directly into your ear canal, um, we can measure your ability to hear frequencies by uh, just playing them at you. So. Mm. In an audiology setting, so audiologists are health practitioners who deal specifically with hearing and hearing loss, uh, they will bring you in for a hearing test and they will play you uh, kind of pulses or uh, beeps at specific frequencies along the hearing spectrum. Usually it goes from 250 hertz to uh, 8000 hertz, uh, which is roughly where we want to look at when we're measuring speech and they started at a certain volume and they progressively decrease it into quieter and quieter and quieter and you have to keep saying oh I can hear it or I can't mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the most physical way to do it but of course measuring hearing in that way requires that you have someone who is able to actually respond and you know hit a button to say yes I heard that or not respond to say no I didn't. Mm -hmm. So what do you do when a person isn't able to respond to tell you, like, let's say a younger child who may not be able to tell you. Yeah, so there are physical ways to do this. You can, we do have adapted hearing tests to get young children and babies to, say, turn their heads towards specific sounds. Mm -hmm. uh, but we can also use uh, a technique called electrophysiology or EEG, which is essentially measuring, so those signals that are going from your hair cells in your ear, up your brain stem, up into your brain, actually produce a measurable electrical current at the surface of your skin. So we can basically measure that electrical current with specialized equipment and we can sort of see if the sound that should be reaching your inner ear is actually uh, reaching up to your brainstem and your brain to be processed properly. So how, how do you know if it's a sound that's the electrical current or that they got, you know, something itches on their foot? Like. So the measurement system itself kind of uh, takes care of this. So in my particular lab, when we measure the signal that I'm looking at, uh, we use a very simple three electrode setup. So basically what we do is we stick three stickers on our participants. One goes on the top of their head uh, in approximately the center. One goes at the back of their neck just below where their hair ends. And the third one goes on their collarbone. Uh, and so the only two electrodes that are really actively measuring the auditory, uh, the little aud electrical auditory current are the ones on your head and your neck, because uh, that's where your brainstem is and that's where this current is being generated. Uh, but the one on the collarbone actually kind of acts as a background check. So humans are really noisy, electrically speaking, <laughs> because that's how everything in your body works. Your muscles contract using electricity. So whenever you move, you're producing little tiny electrical currents. And so what the electrode on the collarbone does is it measures your background level of electrical noise. And so after we've measured everything, we can use that measure of your approximate noisiness and subtract that noisiness from the signal that we measured using the electrodes on your neck and your head. And we get a much clearer signal because we can subtract out all of that background noise that isn't the thing we're looking at. Background noise, no pun intended though. Yes. <laughs> it's good that you're noisy if we're measuring you in yeah, at least at that level. <laughs> uh, 
So maybe maybe I didn't understand this perfectly, but when you are when they're not able to respond and you're basically finding out whether they're hearing these frequencies through the electrodes, is it um, like what are you seeing? Like what feedback are you seeing? Like is it on a screen that you can see things light up or how do you know they're hearing the frequency? So in a clinical setting, um, so we present a sound directly into their ear. With infants, it's usually using a little insert earphone, which is kind of like an earplug that we squish up and put in your ear and it plays sounds. Um, <laughs> they have specific uh, signals that they measure. So one of the most common ones is something called the auditory brainstem response. And this is a very basic response that occurs really early on in this whole processing system in the brainstem. Uh, so when you measure that, you the clinician will actually be standing there with a little instrument and it'll actually spit out a little tiny wave that huh. is the actual wave that you just produced in your brainstem. And it's hmm. an exact copy of that thing. Uh, and by comparing the wave that they read off of uh, a child or an individual that they're testing to uh, the norm data, which is uh, data collected across hundreds of normal hearing participants, they can see uh, if something has gone wrong uh, during the processing of that sound early on. And so if they don't need to actually respond to the sounds, um, do they have to be awake to do this? Uh, it's better... In all honesty, for especially for babies, for them not to be awake. So we often <laughs> we often prefer them sleeping because, like with adult participants, I can tell you, okay, you need to if if you can't fall asleep, you need to stay as still as possible. But obviously, babies aren't nearly as right. cooperative, uh, and the sounds aren't necessarily nice to listen to. Uh, so they don't usually like being tested because we also have to put on the electrodes, and babies don't like new things like that. So uh, we often children will be measured while they're sleeping. Interesting. So the participants you looked at, what age group were they from? So I was lucky enough to be doing uh, young adult normal hearing listeners, which at a university <laughs> like Western is the easiest group of people to recruit <laughs> on the fly. Um, so most of my participants were between the ages of 18 and I think up to 37 was my oldest person. Mm -hmm. So it's a relatively small range of people. Right. And were they asleep or awake? <laughs> Technically, they were allowed to sleep. Um, now, <laughs> Great study. when I'm measuring my uh, participants, I'm not actually really monitoring whether or not they are asleep. We don't have a way of tracking where they are in the sleep stages. Um, so most of them, I think, do fall asleep just because it's boring lying there in the dark. Um, <laughs> we turn off the lights, yeah. too. <laughs> yes, we do. It's, it's actually a very comfortable process. So when we bring you into the lab and we explain everything, we put all the electrodes on you, which is often quite difficult, but we'll just skim over that. Uh, we take you into our sound booth, which is a soundproof room, so it's very quiet. Uh, and we put you in a reclining chair with a uh, support for the back of your neck and you get a blanket and oh, we and turn blanket. out the lights for you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then you lie there in the dark for 60 minutes while I play sounds continuously into one of your ears. <laughs> and is it like lullaby sounds or? Yeah, you said they weren't pleasant sounds. <laughs> so the particular stimuli <laughs> I'm using are, they're sort of English words, but not really. <laughs> um, so the way that we constructed them is I had somebody come into our sound booth and do a whole bunch of recordings of uh, English w vowels and English consonants. Uh, I spliced out or, or cut out those consonants and those vowels from those recordings. And then I Frankensteined them back together into 
consonant vowel consonant strings so something like pet so p-e-t you have two consonants on the outside and a vowel in the middle uh, and uh, in my first experiment uh, participants hear 28 of these in a row that's the full length of the stimulus file which is about 30 seconds long and they listen to that for 60 minutes uh, mm. so even and and because they're kind of Frankenstein together from other recordings they don't sound like perfectly natural speech so they are a little hard to listen to because they sound kind of weird so this compared to what you were talking about earlier where you would hear um, beeps or pulses um, what's is this maybe a more effective way or, do, or is that what why go this route instead of the beeps and pulses yeah so like I mentioned, the auditory brainstem response, that one where you can hold the instrument and see the little wave, is really effective at telling us how the early brainstem is functioning with just respect to sound. Is, is sound getting there? Um, mm-hmm. And you can see things like tumors with that in the brainstem with that particular measure. But what it doesn't tell us is whether or not these babies are processing speech input properly. So especially for children and very young children who get cochlear implants, which is happening more and earlier and earlier in their uh, their age now, and hearing aids as well, the purpose of these assistive devices is to maximize the frequencies of speech. I mean, we have this huge spectrum of hearing. A lot of that is not focused around speech and with hearing aids we want to emphasize those sounds because with young children exposing them to language early is really important Mm. but we don't really have a way of seeing if those language sounds are being processed in the way we like because beeps and clicks and whistles are great for basic uh, you know yes no is there a function happening if there is good if not fix it Uh, but they aren't really processed in the brain the same way that speech is, and we want to see how that's being done. Mm -hmm. So this is more specific then, because you've, like, the words that you've put together um, are going to be more specific in comparison to a beep sound. I'm not sure if more specific is the word I would use. Um, It's more... I mean, the scientific term is ecologically valid, but it's basically a better stimulus because mm-hmm. when you're measuring something, you want to use a stimulus that accurately reflects the thing that you you know want to be seeing processed. So the closer we, the further away we get from beeps and whistles, and the closer we get to realistic sounding speech, the better. Well, right. so the question I have is, why not use like actual words? Why put together fake words? So this kind of really gets into the heart of my research. So the particular brainstem response that we're measuring uh, isn't as nice as we would like it to be. It isn't perfect. Um, And so lots of research with this has used real words, real speech. Um, But the response they get really varies based on the signal that they're feeding the listener. So if you take a a given listener, so Susan, if I was recording you as a participant, and I were to play you words that had the same consonants on either side, but a different vowel. I'm trying to think of an example here. So like pet pet and pat. Those have the same consonants on either side, and only the vowel is different. We would measure a response um, to each of those words that's different in you. Uh, The consonants are the same. The only unit in that word that's changing is the vowel. Now, if I were to play you two words that had different consonants, but the same vowel in the middle, like said or pet, we've also been seeing different levels of response within the same listener. So the TLDR of that is it's really inconsistent within a given 
participant. And in order to actually be able to use this in a clinical setting, we really need to know where that variation is coming from. And we need to be able to develop a list of words, essentially, that produces consistent responses in a wide range of people. Very cool. And so once we do kind of have it at that level where it can be used in a clinical setting, uh, what population do you think would benefit from having this? I think it's largely going to be geared towards infants because infants can't tell us, you know, if you give them a hearing aid, they can't say, oh, that sounds good or that doesn't sound good. They don't have the years and years of language experience that older listeners do, so they don't know what speech is supposed to sound like. Um, and they can't tell us if something is wrong with the hearing aid either. So mm -hmm. if we measure, if we are able to measure this response in infants and see if something has gone wrong in the line when they're processing speech, uh, we'll be able to at least have a rough idea of we need to fix this hearing aid or we need to adjust it in some way. Well, well do, you, do you feel like you, you, with your research, do you feel like you, you answered the question you were seeking to ask or you were at you were asking? <laughs> uh, so yes, we did get some positive results. So the, the basic goal of my research was to see if this variation we see in the response in a person is, has to do with the consonants of the word that you present them with, the vowel of the word that you present them with, or some kind of weird amalgamation of, you know, both of those things, some kind of interaction. Uh, and we found results that suggest it is kind of uh, more complex than we thought it was. It has to do with all of those things. So we are a step closer to getting better words, but we still need, there's still a lot we don't understand about how speech is interacting. Well, um, it sounds like there's more work to be done on the subject, but uh, you did just graduate. Well, you defended last week. Yes. I was going to say, on behalf of GradCast, congratulations. congratulations. <laughs> Thank you, guys. And uh, you're on to other things. So I, I hope you're okay with me talking about this, but you start in September at medical school. Yes. Now, what made you, um, what brought you to research in the first place? And why, why are you switching over to more applied? Of course, this is of this is like my med school interviews all oh, over was, again. Of course, <laughs> I think uh, I think a lot of people are wondering how you got, you know, how people yeah. get to the areas they are. So my interest in going into research was largely founded in my undergrad. I spent a lot of time involved in language-based research, uh, more so reading in humans than listening in humans. Um, but a psychology <laughs> course in my fourth year on auditory science, the science of hearing, kind of got me really excited about this particular. Uh, physical system in humans. So that kind of snowballed into this master's degree. Uh, and my in switching over to medicine, it's not that I wish to abandon research entirely. It's just I would like to have uh, do more clinically based research and having an MD really does help with that, uh, among a variety of other reasons. Cool. So you get sort of bit of both. Then. Yeah, best of both worlds, really. Nice. Well, that's awesome, Emma. Thank you so much for joining us, and best of luck in medical school. Um, so that brings us to the end of our show. So we had Emma here with us today, and it's always fun co-hosting with Susan. Thank you. <laughs> and you, too. Oh, thank you. Um, so you've tuned in to GradCast, the official radio show for the Society of Graduate Students at Western. We're here every Tuesday at 6 o'clock, but you can also look us up on podcasts on iTunes or Google Play, or listen to us on our website 
website, gradcast.ca. And as always, if you would like to be on our show or become a member of the Gradcast committee, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Don't need your deepest secrets whispered in my ear Cause I can hear your heart, your heart I can hear your heart, your heart